Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 269. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 269 you're listening to. My guest today is the return of my brother from another podcast. I'm talking about Lid Shaw from Recording Studio Rockstars. He's also the owner of the Toy Box Studio in Nashville, Tennessee. Musician and my good friend. Lidge uh, first appeared on the show, gosh, when was that? I'm going to say WCA number 90. It was like, what, 179 episodes ago? There's been a few developments since then, so uh, very much looking forward to having him on so we can discuss these developments and uh, get you up to speed. So, Lidge Shaw coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about doing the best with what you have. Recently, I was uh, reflecting on my past two studio experiences of studio, we'll call it studio ownership. You know, for those of you that know my story, you know that I had a studio in San Francisco that I got in over my head with and ultimately after five years had to get out of, which led to the creation of this podcast. For those of you that don't, you know, I'm just, I'm I'm not going to go through it here, but you can go back and you can either check out interviews with me on other podcasts, or in fact, I think I talk about it in episode one of this podcast. So anyways, prior to the San Francisco studio that I have that I got in so much trouble with, uh, I had a studio in Emeryville, California, which is uh, on the other side of the Bay Bridge from San Francisco, and it's right by Oakland and Berkeley. And I was reflecting on that studio space in particular because it was a real clear-cut example of working with what you have. And what I had there was, was a studio that had a low overhead. I had great studio mates. All the gear was paid for, and there was parking. It was easy to get to from my house, didn't require a huge commute, and it was you know within a quick driving distance from my kid's daycare at the time. It really was a, a really was an ideal space for me. And I really felt like I wanted to grow out of it. I felt like, oh, this space is too small. I'm pushing up against the walls, so to speak. I really want to get out and, and go to the bigger leagues or, you know, have bigger, bigger, better clients. And I felt like I couldn't really do that in there. I, I, there was a certain amount, I think, of insecurity that existed looking back on it and thinking that, oh, it's a small time studio. You know, it's not you know, a big fancy studio. And I think that that really is at the heart of what drove me to want to get out of there. And then when an opportunity presented itself to make that happen, I I seized on that opportunity. Whether it was good, bad, I don't know. You know, there a lot of great things came out of moving and going to the bigger studio. But, you know, in hindsight, there's a lot of great things that we had at the smaller studio. Hindsight is 2020 and you know, who knows what, have ha- what would have happened had I stayed at the smaller studio. But it, it does bring up the idea that sometimes we have something great in front of us and we just don't realize it. And we have to work with what we have. And you may think that you have all these limitations, but, you know, honestly, we were making records. 
not only were we making records, we were also doing some voiceover stuff, and it was a great location. It had its flaws, you know, like any place. The air conditioning situation was not great. It was lacking in every way. And um, there was a couple roommates that lived there, and we went through several roommates that, I mean, it was a live workspace, so there was actually two rooms for rent, and you had to have the ideal roommates to make that thing work. And if you didn't, well, it was awkward because, you know, you'd have a band show up and they'd be in the kitchen uh, making coffee. And there's one of the roommates uh, in their bathrobe uh, getting ready for work, you know, and it's a little weird. Yeah, definitely weird. But once we found the right roommates, it, it ceased to be weird for us. So it all worked out. Still, you may be in a situation where you have something that's totally working Unless it's preventing you from making the, the content that you want with bands or uh, whatever kind of audio work you do, you know, and this could be a space, this could be the gear you own, uh, this could be the situation you're in. Just ask yourself, if, if you're actually, if you got all your bases covered, use that as a foundation. What I should have done is I should have evaluated and said, okay, we're paying the mortgage, we're paying for the daycare, food's on the table, money's getting saved, we're out of debt. Now, what I should have done is said, okay, does the new situation tamper with any of that? And it did. And the big mistake I made was, was telling myself that if I build it, they will come. And that was not to be had, right? the people didn't just come rushing in the door. It, it didn't work like that. In fact, I lost some clients because I upped the rates and it just didn't work. Now, if you can make a move and not sacrifice any of that stuff or have a minimal hit on that stuff, all those, you know, foundation things, great. If you think that it's, it's long-term going to be a viable thing, do it. If it's buying a piece of gear or swapping one out or getting into a new space, uh, getting into a new situation, if you think it's the, the best thing to do, you know better than anybody whether or not you should do it. What you should not do is do what I did, is make shit up in your head of how it's going to be because you don't know. Try to shoot holes in all your own theories and get advice from your, your friends and peers about, about the ideas that you have for your new whatever it is. If you tell somebody, well, yeah, I hear you about how you just poked holes in all my theories, but you know what? It's not going to be like that. That's just foolish. That's not the way to go. So to sum it up, just really think through what you have and can you make do with what you have? Is it stopping you from getting anything done? And if the answer is yes, it's stopping me from getting stuff done, and you have a new situation that you can either create or get into, and it doesn't disrupt your life to such a degree that it's going to bankrupt you or it's going to cause you to start up a podcast to have a cathartic uh, experience and uh, figure out what went wrong, well, uh, great. But if the new situation is going to be a major disruption on everything and challenge your relationship and do all that, well, maybe you better reconsider and see if you can make do with what you have. Just a thought, just me rambling. Thanks for listening. All right, let's get to it. Lid Shaw here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. It's on, Lidge. Dude, it's on. 
Welcome back to the podcast. The last time you were on, let me tell you something, was 179 episodes ago. You were on episode number 90. Yeah. Wow. 179 episodes ago? Well, or 79? Yeah, it was 179 episodes ago. You're episode 269. Subtract 90. That's 179. Do we have to do the math? Isn't there a button where you can just say sync to tempo of session and it'll give us the answer? Yeah, we could do that. <laughs> so I got to say, you know, for the audience, if you're a longtime WCA listener, you know that Lidge is my brother from another podcast. If you're new to the show, Lidge is still my brother from another podcast, Recording Studio Rockstars, which I just told you about in the monologue. But Lidge and I, we have a very interesting and great relationship. And it started when... I think I came on your show first and then you came on my mm -hmm. show whenever that was. Actually, it started with me listening to your show and discovering it while I was driving through the mountains of West Virginia and I was checking out your episode with Kim Rosen. Oh, okay. Which is funny since Kim just made a brief appearance on the NAM episode recently. But the funny thing is, is we became good friends and... Even though you live in Nashville, I live in Lafayette outside of Oakland, San Francisco. The funny thing is, is we talk, I probably talk to you more often than I talk to a lot of people. Yeah, same for me. I talk to you at least once a week for sure, sometimes more. Doing the weekly meeting is just, it's awesome. And then it's nice to have somebody who I can just send a message to. It's like, dude, guess what just happened? <laughs> yeah. Guess what happened to my microphone in the middle of a podcast interview? Yeah. And so... Lidge and I use this app called Signal and we send audio messages to each other because it's just faster than leaving a voicemail. So we send each other these messages that generally start with, dude, and then the dude. message. And my kids think that that is hilarious. And sometimes I got to watch it because <laughs> one time I played this message and you were like, ah, dude, let me fucking tell you what happened or something like that. And, and I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> and the kids were, oh, I was shit. listening on speakerphone and the kids just were like, who is that? And I said, is that's that like one of those, one of those skits where you go like, oh shit, oh shit, oh, oh shit. shit. Right. And just like perpetually. It's a perpetual cussing fest. And uh, anyhow, if you haven't figured it out by now, yeah, Lidge is my good friend and I stay at his house when I go to Summer Nam, which we were just discussing before we started recording. I stay at his house and we meet up and we just, as you know, if you listen to the show, we were just rooming together at this hotel, this cheap hotel that turned out to be a great deal. And only speaking of 179, yeah, 179 episodes ago, that's what it cost me to stay at the hotel was 179, I think. I think that was about right. Yeah, it was a great deal. I mean, I don't know how much people want to know about cool little apps we use and things like that, but... Uh, you mentioned Signal for chatting, which that works great for us talking. And the, the reason I like it so much is because you're the only person, I think I have you and one other person on there on that app and that's it. So like if I go look for something there, I'm not going to get distracted by messages from 10 other people. And then the other app that I really like is the one I use for getting our hotel room. I use just that hotels.com app on my phone. And every time I travel somewhere, I'll just start out by looking for the cheapest deal I can find wherever I'm going and just scope it out. And usually it's like, it's pretty surprising. I've, I've stayed in really great hotel rooms for very low rates. Yeah. And see, I generally avoid like all those Trivago and hotels.com. I never like going on those. I'm the kind of person that calls the hotel directly and wants to speak to somebody at the front desk. Nice. I had one of those things happen recently. I had to fly to Albuquerque because my dad's having heart surgery and 
I stayed at this hotel, but the first call was to this 855 number that gave me some call center, I don't know where. And they said, no, the hotel's sold out. Sorry, we can direct you to one of our other properties. And I said, no, that's okay. And I figured out what the phone number was for the hotel direct, called the front desk, spoke to this woman, Mariah, and immediately she was like, oh yeah, we got rooms, no problem. She hooked me up and See, that's why I don't like calling some of those things or dealing with some of those things that are like third parties. But in oh, yeah, our yeah, case. Yeah. So when you call the hotel, have you ever had like John Cleese answer the phone? No. <laughs> Remember Faulty Towers? Yes. Anyhow, we got a good deal. So since episode 90, a lot has changed. And significantly, one of the things that's happened is, is some time ago, as I brought it up on the podcast, because you made a, a brief appearance, is you had the city of Nashville basically come down on your heart and say, you have to cease and desist with this home studio you have. You went through a court hearing with a pro bono lawyer that appeared and represented you, a law firm, and you lost. You lost against the city of Nashville in your lawsuit against them for this very thing. Now things have taken a different turn. You want to talk about that briefly? Yeah. Well, we lost in the local chancery court. So we didn't give up at that point. We actually are appealing it to the state level. We're going to take it to the Tennessee appellate court, but it is a slow process and it means we're going to have to maybe take another year or two to finally climb that ladder and, and get it up that court system. So in the meantime, something else happened just in the in the fall. I had been really kind of focused on just defending my own battle and not really tried to coordinate a real movement yet in and around Nashville just because the timing wasn't quite right because of doing a lawsuit. But Dave Rosenberg is a, a local council member here in Nashville, and he put forward a new bill to the city that is being considered by the Metro Council now that would actually make some changes to the existing law and allow people to be able to work from home and have a customer come over if that's part of what they do for their work. So obviously, as somebody who wants to make records with musicians and bands, it's pretty challenging to have a home studio and be able to make a living from it if you can't actually have somebody come over and sing on your microphone while you're working, you know? But that that appeared, this new bill, and it's called BL2019-48. So basically, Bill 2019-48. And this month, it's going up for consideration by the Planning Commission. They basically advise the Metro Council on city planning ideas. And it's also going up for consideration by the Metro Council itself. And there are going to be public hearings at both of these events. So all of a sudden, I saw this and, oh, wow, this is happening now and it's happening quickly. So it was time for me to do more than just focus on the courtroom aspect and now finally see if I could help make this new bill go through the legislative process and get passed. And so one of the things I wanted to do was find out just how many people out there would be in support of such a thing. So I thought, well, I'm going to start a petition to just see if we can build up some support for making a change here in Nashville. And I started one about a month ago or so. It was in January. And it now has, within a month or less, it's got 106,000 signatures on it. It's gone completely viral. Wow. Well, that's, yeah. that's a nice chunk of people. Yeah. So it's been really, it was quite a surprise when that happened and it was pretty exciting. And more importantly, is it just really reiterated to me 
the importance of trying to make this change happen this time around and succeed at passing the new bill through the Metro Council. And, but you're also having a, is it a fundraiser? Not a fundraiser, a, a concert. Yeah. So one of the ideas that I had around this idea, what am I trying to do? I had, I needed to have a term for it. And the simplest thing I could think of is just save home studios. You know, it's like save the whales. Right. <laughs> So I basically, I started a website called Save Home Studios to start collecting all the press articles that were appearing around my battle in the courtrooms and also this petition. And I wanted to have a, a show. I thought, wouldn't it make a lot of sense to have a show or even a series of shows just called Save Home Studios, where it would give chance to the artists and the bands that rely on home studios to get up on stage and play songs that they have recorded or brought to life in a home studio environment and, you know, have a chance to just sort of speak out in support of this whole thing and say why it's important to them. So this particular one that I put together is coming up on February 23rd. It's right around the corner and it's at a place called D's Country Cocktail Lounge in Madison, which is just right on the edge of the city of Nashville, but it's still within Davidson County, which is our area that has this prohibitive law that says you can't work from home. And so we're putting together an evening of music, and it, the theme is going to be songs that wouldn't exist without home studios. Wow. And where are you going to have this first event at? So it's at D's Country Cocktail Lounge, and it's in Madison, Tennessee, just right north of Nashville, this, the, you know, the downtown area. And we've got some great musicians lined up for this. So one of the artists that actually really stood out here in my home studio is an artist named Mike Ferris, and he mixed his record, Shine for All the People, right in this control room, right, right, through, right through my console, which I'm standing in front of for this interview, with a great producer here in town, Chad Brown, and Mixer, and they won a Grammy. So it was kind of a trip that we actually received a Grammy and hung it up on the wall here in the studio for having been the home studio that recorded that record, or mixed it, rather. And then within a month, I actually got, this is back in 2015, I actually got a month later a cease and desist letter from the city of Nashville saying, oh, by the way, you're not allowed to operate a recording studio in your residentially zoned home. I want to ask you about that. How did that come about? How did they know that that was what was occurring there? Did they do some research to find out things about your studio? Like, how did how did it come to pass that the city of Nashville reached out. How did they find out about you? Yeah. So funny enough, at first I had no idea. And it turns out what I learned is that the Metro Codes website basically offers a phone number and an online web form that just says, hey, if you fill this out, you can turn in your, your friends and neighbors for some kind of codes infraction if you don't like what they're doing. And you can remain anonymous so that neither we nor the person who's being accused knows who is actually filing this complaint, but then we'll go create problems for whoever the complaint is filed towards. So that's what happened in my case. And for a couple of years, I had no clue who had filed the complaint until my legal team was actually on local television on the Channel 5's news program. It's called the, the uh, Open Line. So basically they were there as guests and people were able to call in and ask questions and do a Q&A thing on the TV. And this guy calls in and he revealed himself as the one who filed the complaint. And so we were all like, whoa, you know, what? this is amazing. You know, what was the deal? And he explained that he was actually, 
It's so ridiculous. He was trying to start a computer repair business himself. So his specialty is doing computer repairs for people. And he got his business license and he got his LLC. And he said he called the city codes to come inspect his house. And they said, well, you can't do that in your home. You, you can't repair computers in your home. And he got frustrated and went on the internet and found some, what looked to him like other home businesses in the area and filed a complaint to the city. So it wasn't what very well thought out. You know, I can't say whether it was intentionally malicious or not, but ironically, it was just somebody who complained about wanting to be able to start a home business who caused all the trouble for me. So it's totally random. You know, that's what's so ironic is this, this law is in place that can create basically a career stopping and, you know, a pay your bills stopping moment for anybody here in Nashville. And it can have absolutely no correlation to any sort of issue other than that. So obviously my head is filled with a, a million questions. I don't recall having this conversation with you about this person calling in and revealing themselves. So did this person say, hey, I'm sorry I caused you a lot of trouble. This was done out of frustration? No, unfortunately, with these TV call-in things, I guess they forget to get the person's return phone number. So there was no contact made where we could ever have a, a conversation afterwards. But on the news program, he said, look, I got nothing against the guy. So I don't know what that means, honestly. I don't know if he means he had nothing against me, but like, sorry, dude, I'm throwing you under the bus anyway. Or if it was just like, he didn't realize he was going to cause such a problem for me by filing the complaint that way. But that's what happened. Were you at all tempted to try to figure out who this person was and turn around and, and sue them for wrecking your, your home business? No. I mean, I certainly want, would have liked to know who the person was and find out where they live because they don't even live in my neighborhood. They're not on the street or anything like that. I think he said he lives a few streets over or somewhere. But no, I mean, I'm not... I think it would be a waste of my effort to go maliciously try and, you know, throw a punch back at somebody for something. And also, I don't know if there's any legal standing for it because what I learned is that technically Nashville has this law and if the codes decides that you're you're not in compliance with the law, then you're not in compliance with the law. So yeah. it was out of his hands at that point. Yeah, I guess it's the defensive nature of me that wants to say, let's, yeah, you should sue that guy. But, you know... You're right. That is what the law is. So now there's a potential for that law to change. Yeah. Yeah. And we're really close. That's what's so cool about it. 10 years ago in 2011 was the first time I ever heard about anything saying that, you know, there might be a limitation on what you could do with a home studio. And it's, it's probably the first time that everybody heard about that because there was an attempt to do something at that time called the Home Studio Bill. And it was an attempt to actually fix the law then that started to get some traction, but it also unfortunately sort of accumulated a lot of confusion around the issue as well. And so they ended up trying to figure out a solution that was not really crafted the right way or something like that. But in the end, it lost its momentum at the Metro Council and didn't pass and they ended up sort of dropping the bill. So the reason I tell you that story is because it's now been a decade since that last time that the Metro Council actually tried to make the change and get this right. And this time around, 
I've been fighting this for five years. I've been educating people and helping to get the story understood and prepared for. And now with the petition, you know, we clearly have a compelling number of people that feel like this is an issue that needs to be resolved. The support for being able to protect the ability of people to work from home and particularly make music in Music City out of a home studio is clearly in the majority, in my opinion. You know? So hopefully we'll find out more about that as we, as we go in front of the council this month. But it also means that there are some really, really important dates that are coming up very, very soon. And there are going to be two critical public hearings so a public hearing is essentially a time when an organization with the city like the planning commission or the Metro Council will get together for a meeting to discuss and deliberate over this new proposed bill. But it's also the allotted time for the public to actually show up, get up on the microphone and speak to the planning commission or speak to the Metro Council and make their opinion heard and support. And basically, it is the best time to show in no uncertain terms that there is a huge amount of support for a solution and for this new bill to happen. And just to be clear, this is directly affecting certain parts of Nashville, not not the entire city, because you have areas like Berry Hill that it doesn't affect because it's zoned in the way that home studios can exist. Is that correct? Yes and no. So. Berry Hill is actually not part of Davidson County, believe it or not. It's its own city. It's its own metropolis or whatever. Uh, that's not the right word for it. But Berry Hill is not technically part of Nashville. It just happens to be within Nashville. So I guess it's kind of like how the District of Columbia is within the state of Maryland, you know, even though it's its own state. Ah, I see. I see. And and for those that are listening. Berry Hill is home to a lot of different studios, including our friends over at Sputnik Sound, Addiction Studios. That's uh, Jonathan Kane from Journey Studio. God, there's a yeah. bunch of people over there. So many, so many. And it's a wonderful place. And that's why many of the studios moved there is because they created a small business friendly environment years ago. And what used to be Music Row closer to the Vanderbilt area just started slowly moving, moving, moving over to Berry Hill. And now Berry Hill is the new Music Row for Nashville. But before I get too far away from it, I should tell you when those dates are because it's really crazy. Yeah, throw those dates like, out. Dude, tell me, the, tell me the dates already. So February 27th is the public hearing for the Planning Commission. And that is going to take place in the Howard School Building in downtown Nashville, sort of up the hill a little ways on, I think it's 2nd Ave right there. So first is right by the waterfront, and then second is the next one. I think that's where Howard is. But anyway, I've got links to that, and, and I'll share that with you so that people can just click through as well. We'll put that in the show notes. Yeah, we'll put that in the show notes. And then also, I'm collecting all this information is on the petition, which you can find at savehomestudios.com slash petition. And that will just take you right to it so that you can find all this information. And then the second and probably most important date of all is March 5th. And that's a Thursday night at 6.30 p.m. is when the Metro Council meeting takes place. And that is going to be the second reading of this new bill. And it's going to be the time for public hearing when everybody can get there and you can go up and you can have something to say in front of the council talking about 
Save in Music and Home Studios. And they really want to hear that it's more than just about music, too. So what's really important, because they have to make a decision for the city as a whole, is that this is important for anybody who wants to work from home. This is important for the people that want to be able to just simply, like my co-plaintiff in the lawsuit, Pat Rayner, she's just a retired hairdresser. And she simply wants to be able to continue to see the same people whose hair she has been cutting for her, a lifetime career. They just want to keep coming back to her as they all get older. And she wants to see them one at a time by putting a, a hair cutting chair in her garage. And the city told her she couldn't do that. So it's people like that. It's single mothers who are trying to do hair and nails out of their kitchen with friends and, and people that allow them to make a living doing that. It's accountants, it's tutors that want to help kids in the neighborhood where parents can come drop the kids off and get extra tutoring so that they can get great grades in school. It's music teachers. It's essentially anything you can think of that works well as a home business where somebody just simply wants to support themselves. You know, Lidge, I mean, come on. The irony in this, if you win and this law changes... I find it interesting that the guy who wanted to repair computers out of his home, right? he's, gonna he's going to finally be able to get what he wants by throwing you under the bus. Wow. Do you think he knew that? Maybe he knew that all along. Maybe yeah, this was right. like the I'm, ultimate strategy. No, I, I think he, in the world of anonymous internet trolling, he... He he, <laughs> he takes the he gets the gold ring. He gets the gold troll award. I mean, because truly, I mean, he he reached out and anonymously threw a couple of people under the bus and screwed up their businesses. And now, because of your actions and the action of your co-defendant, you guys might just turn this thing around and it will benefit him in the end. So what yeah. a strange turn of events if it it's happens to go insane. your way. It's pretty intense. Again, I want to encourage, I know you've got listeners everywhere, but you, I know you also have a lot of listeners who are either in Nashville or know somebody in Nashville and Music City. And I want to encourage all of you to please, please, please start by going to safehomestudios.com slash petition and sign the petition and share it so that more people are aware of it. Go to one of these council meetings or the Metro Planning Commission meeting and show up and and get up and speak if you have something to say or and this is another topic we can talk about in a moment but if you don't want to speak just show up in support and raise your hand and just let everybody know that you're there in support again that's february 27th for the planning commission meeting and then march 5th at the metro council and that that actually takes place at the courthouse downtown in nashville and the courthouse is that big building with the with the big green grass in front where Nashville Live on the Green happens in the fall and the end of the summer where they have music concerts. So it's right there. It's literally, they define Music City right in front of the courthouse where the Metro Council meeting happens that is, we're trying to get them to allow us to make music in Music City. And regardless of what your view is of what a home studio is or is not, having been to Lidge's house, I can tell you that it's a separate building with a build out. It's a great space. And even if it was just a desk with a laptop and a pair of speakers, I just, I think it's ridiculous, especially in Nashville, that this is taking place. It definitely doesn't look good for Nashville when things like this come out in the press. So I really hope that it turns around not only for your sake as my friend, but for the sake of Nashville. And I hope that, you know, maybe if you live in another state in the U S or you live in another country, 
And there are laws around this that are preventing you from having a, a home studio. If this law changes, this is a great precedent for others and a, and a great point of reference if you're having trouble in your own city about what, yeah. how this can, how this can work. Yeah, absolutely. So in my case, as you point out, I've got a separate building and in 20 years of living here in my house, I had the studio in the house and then I finally moved it down to where the garage is. And that whole time I've never, ever had a complaint from a neighbor about making music in my home or having a home studio. In fact, rewind a couple of years when I attempted as a first move to just simply see if I could rezone my home to be called an SP rezoning where it was like, okay, you'll be allowed to be a resident and a home studio. And that's it. Like you can't be a, a parking garage or anything else. You could just be a resident with a home studio. And I got 40 signatures of support from the neighbors and they wrote in handwritten letters to the council saying, hey, it's cool with us and everything. And they, and they still said no, because it was I guess it was just too complicated at the council level. So hopefully we can get this right now with with a simple change to the bill that will solve this for everybody. You talk about laptops and stuff like that. And the thing is now everybody who goes and gets a, a smartphone and comes home from the T-Mobile store, wherever they just got it, they've already got a home studio. I mean, a studio is a computer these days and a microphone and a pair of headphones. And... I just had lunch with a potential new intern and you know he's talking about coming up as a a young musician and the first thing you have access to is your computer and you're by yourself so the first thing you learn how to do is make beats using GarageBand or something like that and then the next thing you want to learn how to do is have somebody sing on the microphone and it doesn't get simpler than than that and how is it possible that a place like Music City isn't going to even allow that, let alone keep this historic culture of having great musicians get together to play like real acoustic instruments in front of microphones alive when that's where the history of all this comes from, you know? You're making reference to a cell phone. Is that because some people are making music on their cell phones? Yeah, people. I mean, if you just get a, you know, go get a new iPhone, you can download apps on it and you can make records on it. I mean, one of the guests on my podcast is a guy named Pete Johns, down in Australia, and his entire channel is dedicated to making music on your iOS device. Oh, man. Things are changing, aren't they? <laughs> Things are changing. So, <laughs> so I mean, I, the reason I go into that is because I just want to dispel any myths about what a home studio is so that people aren't confused, because we all get confused quickly, and we, we try and imagine things, and the definition of a home studio or a home business is as simple as that. It's like, look, this is my home. I'm operating it like a home, doing things I would do in my home. I just happen to be good at this particular skill set, whether it's making music or cutting hair or painting somebody's nails. And I'd like to be able to have somebody come over and do a reasonable exchange of like, I'll do this thing for you for payment and we'll make a living and everybody's happy and it's good for the neighborhood. Audience, I'll put all the links in the show notes for this stuff. I encourage you to get behind Lidge and what he's doing here. He's leading the pack and it affects a lot of different people in many different ways. So check out those links and lend your support to uh, what he's trying to do here. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. 
So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. So that's been eating up a lot of your time, a lot of your thought process. Mm -hmm. So as far as the other things you've been doing, let's make a transition and uh, talk about those things. So you also have, if for those of you that have no clue who Lidge is, he runs this podcast called Recording Studio Rockstars, and he's also a musician, recording engineer, and he's been on the show before. You can listen to all that on WCA number 90, 179 episodes ago. What the hell else is going on, man? Man, you know, I've just, life's pretty fun. I mean, I got a lot, a lot of activities. My, my schedule is pretty busy these days. But um, I'm still loving to make music in my studio with friends. Nashville does allow you to make music for yourself for fun in your home studio. So I'm doing that as much as I can, trying to play more guitar. My podcast, Recording Studio Rockstars, has been really doing fantastically well. And it's been a lot of fun to see that grow. But it's a real privilege, like in your case, to be able to just get to know so many people out there making music and particularly to be offering something that is meant to help. It's meant to help our audiences enjoy making records more, make better records, bring people together, network, build community. And so that's what I do with Recording Studio Rockstars is, is like you, Matt. I, I do interviews with producers and engineers and musicians, and we just talk about making better records. You know? Do you think that your podcast has helped you open a lot of doors that otherwise wouldn't have been open? Oh, I mean, without a doubt without a doubt. In fact, the funny thing takeaway for me, while on the one hand, it seems kind of obvious. It's like, oh, sure. If you go interview 250 people for a podcast, now you know 250 more people. And so your network has grown. That's definitely true. And that's sort of easy to see. But what's funny is that I didn't think of this when I started the podcast, that just the, the sheer act of interviewing all these people and hearing what they had to say about making records, about mixing records, about getting better recordings with microphones in the studio, about getting better control over the bass and the kick drum and the low end in your mix, or getting your mixes louder, not too quiet, not too loud, making them really sound great. Now I've actually, I'm making much, much better music in the studio because of that. Just, just through the sheer act of being a student through the past five years, and interviewing all these people. And that was a bit of a surprise to me. I didn't realize quite how much I would learn just by starting a podcast and interviewing people. How long do you think you'll carry your podcast on? That's something I always ask myself. How long? How much longer am I going to do this? That's a good question, man. I don't think about wanting to stop. But ironically, the only thing I think about is occasionally thinking, I wonder if it would be cool to take a season off so I could actually just go back and listen to all the episodes I've already recorded. Because one thing about creating this stuff is my show, like yours, is every single week. And in the same time that's, that we might be listening to somebody's episode, we're already having to move forward and create the next ones. So we yeah. don't always get that same. The time frame in which you absorb podcasts and love them at the beginning before you create one of your own, once you are making content, your time isn't the same as it was when you were first just listening. You know, I have a hard time going back to my old episodes, just not only from a time perspective, but just from a patience perspective, because... <laughs> I just, I'm like, all right, I know, I know what this is about. I've already heard this. I recorded this and I, I just can't sit and listen to my own self. It just grows old very quick, but 
I appreciate those that do take the time <laughs> to listen. Yeah, you know, I have people who regularly come up to me and they say, much like I did when I met the first podcast host, I was a fan of their show. People come up to me and they say, you know, I, I just found your show and I loved it and it's great. And now I've gone back to episode one and I'm trying to like catch up. And, you know, I'm almost there, but I've only been listening for two weeks. And I'm like, good Lord, dude, you're talking about like 500 hours of time. I know. <laughs> I know? When people say- Just to get there. Oh yeah, I binge listen to your show. I mean, I'm honored and it makes me blush, but I just think, wow. You it's know, dedication. That is that's, dedication. That's serious dedication. Yeah. That's somebody who's like really serious about doing this craft, which is cool. But you know, I mean, I, I get it. I think of all the all the shows on Netflix I've binged, watched in like- a sleepless three night run. You'd think I was a meth addict, but you know, I'm not. I just like the show. Yeah, that's shows. true. That's true. Although, you know, like a good 12 episode series, it's still only about 12 hours. That's about six of my podcast episodes. <laughs> no, so wait, I got a tip though for, for your listeners and for anybody who's listening to my show. Don't forget that there is a speed button, whether you're on YouTube or on your podcast player, there is a button where you can just simply increase the speed so if you don't feel like you have enough time for something, but you can still absorb all the information, just speed it up a little bit. That's what I do if I have to. Yeah. You know, our friend Graham Cochran, I listened to Graham's podcast and I listened to him, I think at like 1.3, 1.4 times the speed. Yeah. Because he's You'd never he, even know it was fast after after a minute. Yeah. As long as there's no sonic degradation, you don't, you don't really even notice it. And when you bring it back to the original speed, you're like, holy moly, Graham, speed up, talk faster. <laughs> <laughs> yeah graham's awesome yeah yeah he's uh, you know it took me a, a while to get up to speed to really not only like him but appreciate him and once i got to know him as a person i realized what a great place he comes from and my trust for him went up immensely yeah, absolutely but at first i'm slow to adopt anything new really and when i got a grip on what he was doing i was like i like this guy I think he's doing good work and I'm, and I'm going to pay more attention. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll also extend that to say that starting the podcast, going to events like NAM, AES, meeting you, meeting our other friends out there and just expanding that network in this kind of online teaching space. That's been amazing. It's been so much fun to meet people and get to know people and, and just learn this world in the same way that it, it it's been a lot of fun to just learn the world of making records, you know, like when I first started learning how to record, it was all just brand new. Yeah. Well, I mean, and it's funny because the group of us that hang out at NAM and meet every, every Friday in our mastermind video calls, Chris and Brian from Six Figure, mm -hmm. Chris Salem, Bjorgen, Bjorgen Dixon, Kevin Ward too. Kevin, Kevin's come and hung out with us plenty in the past and there's been a whole bunch of interesting folks that have come and gone over the Come years. and gone, but yeah, the core group there, it's been a real interesting thing. It's funny, we've been we've both been doing this for a while now. Everybody I talk to now says, oh man, podcasting is the thing. Podcasting is is the way it's going and, and more and more people are listening to podcasts and I it cracks me up that that's great now that we've been doing it for such a long period of time. Based on what you know now and what what we both know, our, our accumulated knowledge of, of making a podcast for audio professionals that are looking for another outlet to do stuff, whether they're doing podcasts for other people or whether they're starting their own podcast. What are your thoughts about that as far as 
starting up a podcast from scratch. If you were to do it today, knowing what you know now, would there be anything you would change? Boy, if I was to do it today, the thing I would change is starting one with the knowledge I've got now, which is cheating anyway, because you can't really do that in life. You, right. know, you, have to, you have to stumble through it. But the things that I had to do to get to this podcast was start three other podcasts and get those ones wrong and learn a bunch of stuff before I finally knew something about this one. One you, thing that's- You had the Bitcoin podcast, right? Yeah, right. My first podcast was called Bitcoins and Gravy, and I, and I had a co-host right here in Nashville. And I was really interested in listening to podcasts. He introduced me to this new thing called Bitcoin. I was pretty fascinated by it. And then I said, you know, let's go listen, see if there's any podcasts out there about it so we can learn more about it. And so we found one. And then almost immediately, my friend John said, hey, they're doing a contest. You know, you can like make your own pilot episode and submit it. And he comes from a, a world of voiceover too. And that's how we had been working together. And so then we said, well, let's start a podcast. And so we did one and, and it ended up winning the contest. And so we ended up getting a chance to launch a new podcast on their network. And it was pretty incredible. You know, like the first episode we created was going out to like 15,000 people on week one and just kept growing from there. And I did that for a while. And then the reason that one fell apart is it had to do with the partnership and the fact that we weren't really meant to go into business together and create something like that long-term. And also because I just wanted to double back and focus on the music aspect. And so then I had a couple more things I tried and finally landed on the idea of doing recording studio rock stars where it became very clear to me, okay, my intention is to share what I know and love about making records. And I want to share that with the people who care about that. And that's what they want to do. And so then it all just sort of made sense to me as I was launching this new show. So that's a long way of saying that the answer is, I think for me and for anybody who's thinking about starting something, get really, really crystal clear at the beginning about why it is that you're going to do it. Who's going to listen to it? Who's going to give a shit about your podcast or whatever you're creating? You know, are you making it for them or are you just making it for you and what your mission is? And then, that, and then that'll help you really get off the ground with real intent, I think. I've often toyed around with creating a, another podcast, not as regular as Working Class Audio, but one where it's a short run thing, where it's like a limited amount of episodes. Oh, yeah. I've often toyed around with, especially, you know, I don't know how it is out there, but the homeless population in California is exploding. And it's often wow. occurred to me, to create a podcast, like a short run series on homelessness, where I go and actually interview homeless people and talk about their experiences. And then anyhow, something I thought. Let me ask you the question, the tough questions. Who would be the audience? The general public who has an assumption about homelessness that they think that they know why homelessness happens and or the people out there who say things like, well, why don't they just go get a job? And right. quite honestly, there's a lot of employed homeless people, especially out here, people living in their cars and yeah. living in tents who have regular jobs, but they just can't afford the rent. And it's the world is not going according to plan as they had originally thought. So yeah, that's something I've thought about. I don't know if I've got the bandwidth to do it. I mean, gosh, you know, both yeah. of us being parents, I think we, we understand we only have so much time and getting our episodes out on a weekly basis is is a challenge sometimes. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Let me ask you that question. In your experience, is uh, launching and, and sustaining a podcast 
a piece of cake or is it is you know is it hard work you know it seemed like launching it in retrospect was a piece of cake because i had nothing to lose i just was like ah, i'm just going to do this and see what happens and then once i saw what happened in the demand that's when i realized oh this is going to be some work i'm going to have to yeah. this is not something i can blow off on a weekly basis so yeah i don't feel like doing yeah. it this week i'm just not going to you know i can't do that well i agree with you it's a, it can be a ton of work and for me the solution to a ton of work is often get good enough at it that i can create a system for myself that's really efficient. Well, to kind of close out this topic with you, if you're interested in doing a podcast, one thing that I would recommend you do is head on over to our friend, Larry Milburn over at Roadie Free Radio. He actually recorded the panel that Lidge and I were a part of at NAM called The Power of Podcasting that of course had our friend Chris Graham from Six Figure Home Studio and our friend Fela Davis from uh, 23DB Productions. So if you want to hear more about creating a podcast, obviously you can go on over to uh, Roadie Free Radio, our Larry's podcast. Check it out. He does a great show, a little bit different take on on things, and you can hear our panel. That was a lot of fun, man, doing that panel. That was a lot of fun. And that was- Did uh, you, you already talked about that on your show, right? You talked about the line that was wrapping around down the hall. I don't know if corner. I went into such great detail. I will say that if I haven't said it before, it was pretty packed. There was a lot of people in there and it was the Hilton ballroom that- I think we had 175 people in the room. Which was pretty surprising. You know, I mean, yeah. my expectations, I guess, were far lower or I didn't even think about it, to be honest with you. It was like 10 a.m. on a Friday that's, morning. That's pretty good <laughs> for doing a, a 10 a.m. thing at NAM about podcasting. It was fun though. Moving forward, Liz, let's talk about as a studio guy, I always bring up income streams, revenue streams, diversification on my show. One of the things that you do and a lot of friends of ours do is these courses, like Chris Salem has his Cubase course. You've got mm -hmm. Rockstars of Drums, which we can put a link in the show notes too. But that is another revenue stream for audio professionals is to take what you know and love and present it in a classroom or a course format and sell it if you think it's the thing to do. And that's something that you do. So can you, you yeah. want to talk about rock stars of drums? Well, I think it's just as simple as this. I mean, if, if you're somebody who's considering what you do and what you can do with that knowledge, it's just the idea of like, if you've gotten good at something, share it. People want to learn it just like you wanted to learn it. So learn how to share the knowledge you have and teach it. And now we have these really effective ways to do that. You can go create free videos on YouTube and things like that and, and put it out there in that way. But you can also create a much more comprehensive way of teaching where you use certain websites that will host the content for you and the videos, and you can present it in a really organized course. And so that's what I did for my love of recording drums. And I remembered that early on, and still, I mean, I'm always in search of like the better way to record drums, but I specifically remember earlier being at a point where I'd have somebody say to me, let's make a record and let's do it. And let's do it like a minimal miking on the drums. And I had learned a certain way of recording the drums. And I thought to myself, I'd hear them say that. And I was like, oh, that sounds so cool, but it makes me really nervous because like, I'm not sure if I know quite how to do that yet. And so I did a whole bunch of research, learning all these different ways to record drums, whether it was, you know, one mic, two mics, three mics, four mics, 13 mics. And I decided to 
ultimately put together a course called Rock Stars of Drums that just shares all this information that I've learned about recording drums and shows you how to mic up a drum kit and a whole variety of different configurations, how to edit drums, how to mix drums to make, make them slamming and punchy and loud and get them exciting. And I laid all that out in a course framework. So that's what Rockstars of Drums is. It's an interesting thing because it can really provide another way of making money with your studio. And in your case, when you're in the middle of this situation where you can't necessarily commercialize or you can commercialize it, but you can't necessarily have people visiting, you can actually utilize your studio for content creation that one can monetize to teach others. Yeah, it's true. It's true. There's a lot of opportunities to figure out creative ways to supplement your income with your studio, with your profession, you know, making records. And it's pretty fun to explore all these different things. But creating courses is a great way to do it, especially because at the core of it, you're trying to help other people make records themselves. And that feels good. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app. And I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Sampley, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Sampley.app or Sampley.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Sampley.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. One other thing I wanted to kind of wrap up on is just kind of the state of things in Nashville. You know I love coming to Nashville, and I've talked about it on the show endlessly that I really enjoy Nashville. We love having you here, dude. It's Yeah, it's such a great time every time, and, and it is Music City. I mean, there's just so much going on. It's You can easily just take up a ton of time just going to studio parties alone before you even see any music, really. Well, at least that's what's happening when, when I come for Nam. So the question is, is last time I was there, maybe it was even the time before that, the Lyft driver, numerous Lyft drivers said to me, oh man, this place, you know, like we'd be in, in what they would call traffic, heavy traffic. And I would giggle because I'm like, oh, you have no clue how much traffic, what, what yeah. real traffic is because like, this is nothing. And and they would tell me, well, you know, there's so many people moving here. There's like 350, 375 people a week moving here. Do you still feel that? Is there a lot of people moving to Nashville? Well, I still hear it and there's stuff popping up like crazy here. So Nashville is growing like mad and you do feel it with the traffic building up a little bit, but still it's nothing like being in Boston or Los Angeles or New York or anywhere like that. So I don't know. It feels very positive to me. I mean, what's exciting to me and what's kind of a trip is to go out and I'm going to the same coffee shop and going to the same favorite lunch restaurants or whatever. And then I look around, I'm like, 
there's whole crowds of people here that don't even know the places that I go to that are going to their own places that I didn't even know existed because like there's so many layers to Nashville now. So it's kind of wild to see that. And it's also cool to see that the people that are coming here and that are making up the population of Nashville, they've got all these interests that are important to them that I can discover. So I don't know, that sounds, maybe that sounds a little too vague, but I just, I like that the world is way more vast than my tiny little bubble. I like how you put that though, how there's multiple layers to Nashville, whereas Nashville may have been kind of limited in its layers years and years and years and years ago. Over time, it's not just the town of country music anymore, right? There's yeah, there's a lot of other kinds of music that are taking place in Nashville. So if you've never been, I really encourage you to go. It's it's a great town, a lot of fun. And obviously, if you're an audio professional, you got to go. And if you're a musician, you got to go. It's, it's, it's fantastic to see. Yeah. I mean, again, like the intern lunch I had today, I'm just meeting so many kids who are coming up through this and they care about hip hop. They want to make beats with crazy vocals on top. And look at the record that just won five Grammys, Billie Eilish's record. It's done with programming on a computer and samples and a vocal mic. And even though that doesn't look like the world of the playing in bands in the 90s and the late 80s that still turns me on, I'm fascinated by that. And I, I guess, be it a good or bad attitude, my attitude is if the kids love it, then I better figure out what it is. There's something there, you know? And you know, also, before we sign off, I have to remind the audience that yearly, Lidge does this really cool thing, and that is the Hay Bale Studio at Bonnaroo. It's it's a studio yeah. built behind the, the main stage at Bonnaroo, and basically after somebody plays on the, on the stage, then they'll circulate into the Hay Bale Studio to do a little bit of recording with Lidge at the helm. And you get to record a lot of very uh, well-known people that we're all fans of. And can you talk about how the Hay Bale Studio, how long have you, first of all, how long have you been doing it and where is it at at this point in time as far as, how has it progressed? Okay, so I think last year was actually my 15th year of doing the Hay Bale Studio down at Bonnaroo. And again, we basically build the studio on location in a double wide trailer surround the whole thing with hay for soundproofing. And now we have, you know, you walk in the door and you're in basically a totally self-contained recording studio with backline of gear and a, a mixing and a mastering area. And so we'll record all these songs with bands and then send them out to radio right there from the Bonnaroo Festival. But I've done it for 15 years and a lot of it has stayed really the same. Like I've probably taken the same drum kit down every year, you know, just about I've taken, I got one guitar amp that's always gone down, but some of the microphones have changed out a little bit, except for probably always bringing the SM7s for vocals and some 57s for guitars. And then the mixing console I've, has evolved for me. So I've started with a little Mackie 1604 the very first year, and then I went through like the Midas consoles, like the Midas Venice, I think was one of the ones we used to take. And then I, I tried like the SSL, AWS, and I've taken my Soundcraft console down there. And now I finally like pared it down to taking the, the PreSonus digital board down there. 
And it's that's been really transformative too, because with the new technology, it just makes it so much easier to accommodate a whole variety of musical inputs, mix it all down, use the built-in compression and EQ and effects to really dial in a mix the way you want, and then have a full 24 channels of digital audio going over to a computer on nothing more than a single ethernet cable. So that, that's been a real transformation and the ability to do this. But the, you know, the festival itself has also transformed. So when it first started out, it was all about jam bands and, and like widespread panic was the headliner and that was the big deal. And now the music that everybody, you know, the kids love has evolved and they started actually getting rid of some of the stages. Well, maybe I shouldn't say some. One stage in particular disappeared where it used to be a stage for bands and it turned into a DJ stage. And then you're just more likely to see a performance there like Post Malone headlining a show where it's nothing but a huge video screen and tracks and one guy on a microphone in front of 60,000 people. So I've seen an evolution of both the music and the technology happening at the same time. I forget, is that your creation or is that something you inherited or how did you get involved with that? Oh, the Haybell Studio? Yeah. So, so I got invited. I had done a session in Nashville for somebody who was doing something called Bonnaroo Radio. And that session, I think it brought together the band Gomez and the artist Warren Haynes together into the studio for, to record a song. And that went so well that then later, the same guy who hired me for that, he said, hey, you know, we've been thinking about upgrading our studio thing where we do the radio compound down at Bonnaroo. If we gave you this budget, do you think you could come down and set up some sort of studio? And I was like, yup. <laughs> <laughs> so to me, it didn't even matter what the budget was at all. I would have just been like, absolutely. And so we went down there and started doing that. And then for one reason or another, because it was a good idea and because it worked and it's a great festival. And I guess because I care a lot about it, I just made sure that it worked really, really well. And, and it just kept happening year after year. And now it's just grown into this thing that I just, I know it's going to happen every year in June. And I got a great crew of guys that come down with me. It just, the very first year, it was just me and one other guy. And now there's a crew of four guys that I hire and then also an intern and we all know exactly what to do. So it's just a lot of fun. You know, I take a whole U-Haul truck full of gear down down with us and it's pretty wild. It's a long story. I could probably put a link in there too to some of the episodes I've done where I really like break it out and explain how the whole process goes. But it's just a lot of fun. It's really intense. We will record, mix and master close to a hundred songs in four days. And uh, all that stuff gets put out on the radio and some of it gets posted on the internet or released by the artists and that sort of thing. Wow. Well, that's cool. Someday, someday I will come down and either help or check it out or be You're a part in, of it. dude. Yeah. You just tell me when. Okay. Well, Lidge, buddy, it's good to have you on. Thanks for coming on and chatting with me. That's, Thanks, my brother. I know we talk my brother all, from another podcast. I know we we talk all the time, but you know, I figured Lich has got to come back on, and it's perfect timing with everything that's going on with Save Home Studios. And once again, everybody, the links will be in the show notes, so be sure and follow up on that. That's my ask of you. Yeah, please. February twenty seventh, March fifth. Remember those dates. Remember those dates. Twenty twenty. If you're listening to this podcast, yeah, twenty twenty one. And if you're listening later on. Double check, because maybe we'll still be fighting the battle by then. I that, don't know. That's true. 
All right, my brother, I will talk to you later. And uh, thanks again for coming on. Yeah, thank you, dude. Cheers. Talk to you soon, man. Okay. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Lid Shaw here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. I want to thank everybody that helped out with the show. That includes Anne-Marie Plo on the editing, Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme song, and Mr. Chuck Smith, The Voice. Make sure you head on over to workingclassaudio.com to check out today's show notes. Also, connect with me on LinkedIn. I would love to hear from you. And until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like, and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.